Well, good you can join us today. Uh, Let's come to God's word in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your powerful word, as we look to your victorious rescue of us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Mongolia, where we served as missionaries, the country was trying to claw its way out of post-communist poverty. They lived so close to the bread line, as we say, that taxi drivers, I remember going for a ride in a taxi, and the taxi driver would go into the petrol station and get $2.50 worth of petrol. Uh, Didn't have any spare cash. That's all they had. And then my fare would provide uh, petrol for the next fare. Uh, Rubber from truck tyre retreads would be put on the family fire inside their tents and create dirty smoke, but that's all they had. And so living among the Christians in Mongolia, I was often struck by the prayers of the people and how, how many of their prayers related to finances and daily bread being provided. Many of my Christian friends would be praying that God would provide for them money and work to buy food today and pay their expenses. I wonder what your prayers say about what's important to you. It might be a certain work situation, finances, a rogue relative or family member causing grief in your extended family, an aged parent who is sick, or a mental health darkness that doesn't lift as this pandemic just keeps continuing. These are very normal, distressing realities that many of us live with. And they are natural things for us to be constantly praying about. As we pray, we might wonder, is God listening? Does he care? Do you have the will and the power, God, to intervene in this? Sometimes it's hard to know what to expect. What are we looking for? We call on you, Lord, but things aren't good. What are we to expect you to do? And the big question that captures uh, the text that we're looking at today, what does it look like for God to come to our rescue? What does it look like for God to come to our rescue? Well, the Bible actually relieves us in our individual struggles, not by handling one of them individually, one by one, but to present a much bigger, grander, hope-saturated story. The story is much bigger, you see, than you and me. And even bigger than Mark chapter 7, the chapter we're looking at today. And so I'm going to ask with you, if you've got a Bible in front of you, to come back all the way to Psalm 106 as we come to our first point. uh, The end of Psalm 106. So first point being that we see God's victorious rescue way back in Psalm 107. And for 107, we look to the end of 106. The Psalms are, of course, where these powerful wrestles with God take place in Scripture. And so a big section of the Psalms, from Psalm 90 to 106, calls out to God in hope from the point of exile. Now, Sandy's going to take us through some of those Psalm 90s uh, Psalms in the coming weeks. But Psalm 106, the end of one section ends Israel's big prayer as they struggled with sin and enemies and exile away from their beloved Jerusalem. The end of Psalm 106 there says, Save us, Lord, 
out our God and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And their cry to God finds its fulfillment as Psalm 106 rolls then into the final section of the psalm, Psalm 107 to 150. Psalm 107 rejoices in the day when God intervenes and it starts looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. God shows Israel what it looks like when he intervenes in their pain. And so Psalm 107, I won't go through it today in detail, but just point you to it. It goes through four pain-filled scenarios that people are facing. God calms the stormy sea, and so too will Jesus, as we see in Mark's Gospel. God heals the sick, those approaching death, and so too we'll see in Jesus in Mark's Gospel. God looses the bonds of those who are tied up and bound in chains. So too will Jesus in Mark's Gospel. God feeds the hungry in the wilderness. So too will Jesus in Mark's Gospel. I think Mark is drawing from Psalm 107, showing here is the way God provides for his people and bringing it into the person of Jesus. So a couple of examples, a few verses as an example. Verse 29 of Psalm 107. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And the psalm ends with the repeated sentence, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And the final challenge, as we look to God's rescue in the world, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, the symbols of God's great rescue in the world envisioned by the psalmist is then brought to life through God the Son in his miracles. I remember Kathy Freeman's victory walk after her gold medal run in the 2000 Olympics. It was so exciting. After a bad decade for the New South Wales Blues, against Queensland and the state of origin, I loved watching their victory lap as well. I could happily even watch them do two or three victory laps after that pain. The miracles of Jesus are something like a victory lap of God in his creation, triumphing over the elements. And Jesus in Mark's gospel seems to do two victory laps here, two rounds of miracles You might have noticed some repetition so far in Mark's gospel. Jesus does these miracles, victory lap one, among the Jews in chapters four to six. Calming storms, releasing from demons, feeding crowds, healing the sick. The four types of miracles in Psalm 107. But now in Mark chapter six to eight, Jesus is doing a second victory lap. He does similar miracles all over again. Calming storms, releasing demons, feeding crowds, healing the sick. But this time, the four symbolic miracles in Gentile lands. Why? Because God wants us to know the God who saves Israel has also come to save the nations. He's come to save you and your household, your apartment block, your suburb, in your time. As we see what the salvation of God looks like in our world. If you were like me then, uh, someone who's not a Jew, then this lap is particularly 
enjoyable for us to look on on. So our second point, we see God's victorious rescue among the nations. First point in 107, Psalm 107, and now we see it among the nations as Jesus brings it to us. Firstly, we see that as a little girl is saved from her demons in verses 24 to 30. We read in verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Now, another Jew of the time, of the first century, Josephus, calls people from Tyre, uh, to quote him, notoriously our bitterest enemies. Uh, Gentiles of this time were called dogs, not just on the street, but by Jewish rabbis. And the dogs from Tyre were worse than most, as they were historical opponents of Israel. Verse 24, we read, Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he couldn't keep his present secret. Uh, Did he want to be left alone so that he could teach those in the house? Was it to get some rest? We're not told, but in any case, verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about Jesus, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. Jesus seems to struggle to get rest in Mark's gospel, and it's happened again. Another little daughter here in Mark's gospel, another demon, and another falling at Jesus' feet. There was a distressing uh, story in the newspaper that I was reading last week of a woman whose daughter was suffering from terrible mental health issues. She'd gone from being a fairly healthy, balanced, active uh, girl engaged in her schoolwork and school friends to more recently being in a dangerous situation in recent months. Now, there are a number of similar stories closer to home in our suburbs. And as I read of this article, I couldn't help but long that such a girl meet Jesus in her despair. Uh, It seemed hopeless. And the lockdown, just continuing, seems to be making it worse for her. In verse 26, the social status of this person is against her. Not only does she have the problems of her daughter, but now as she comes to Jesus, she's aware of the social status problem. She's a woman in a male-oriented world. She's Greek, that is, Gentile, one of the dogs. She's from Syrian Phoenicia, from Tyre of all places. She's at the bottom of the barrel for nationalistic Jews. And yet, verse 26 She's bold enough and desperate enough to beg Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. What does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't hide this racial division problem. He brings it out into the open with a parable, a way that truth and cultural assumptions can can coexist in this parable. Now, in this parable, will this woman hear the parable with faith like seed sown on good soil? Will she allow herself into it as Jesus encourages us to do? Jesus seems to be testing her understanding and resolve, verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. You want a miracle from me? But first let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Like Jacob, who was called Israel through his wrestle with God in the Old Testament, 
This is a woman ready to wrestle with God. She knows the Lord of Israel can bless the nations. He has the bread that she needs. That's why she's begging him. And so she says in verse 28, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's impressive. She enters with faith into the testing parable of Jesus. Jesus isn't calling her a dog, but she's taking the parable on face value. And rather than let it lock her out, she's not an Israelite child at the table. She comes back to God's goodness and uses the parable to keep coming in. This is stretching on the brain. Uh, The preacher Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, it's like turning a key in a lock. The same key which locks will also unlock. So this parable could have locked her out, but she's seeing it as a key to be coming back in. The same key which locks will also unlock, says Spurgeon. It all depends on the turn of the key and still more on the turn of your thoughts. Are you offended by this parable or will you be helped by it? In or out? Another commentator puts it like this. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. She interprets the parable with faith in God's character and power. She knows it's worth entering the testing arena with Jesus. She sees through the offense of the parable because she knows who's saying it. Our dog Molly circles under our table at home. I don't know if you have a dog at home, but Molly's our dog and she does that. And has, she's always been most successful around the feet of our youngest child at the time. Uh, plenty of half meal has been gleaned from the bird's substantial crumbs. What is the woman's point? Even the crumbs from what you offer will suffice for our needs. Even if this parable and, and this child-dog terminology were to apply to us, I would be content with that. Perhaps she's heard of the basketfuls left over when the Israelites were fed. There's no shortage of bread when you, Lord, are supplying it. You, the Jewish king, have in such abundance what my little girl needs. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes we find ourselves saying, as Christians, God is enough, and we remind ourselves of that when we're feeling stretched or discontent in our unmet longings. God is enough. That's a statement of faith. But this woman says, but what she says expresses even more faith. More than God is enough, it's like she's saying, just a crumb from God is enough. Just a tiny part of your grace and kindness, God, will be enough for us. Just a ray or two of your glory. Yes, Israel has the front seats to experience your kindness and power. They have a seat at the table. But just a glimpse from the back row would be enough for me and for my family. Like Israel before her, she spars, she wrestles with God here, and she prevails. A female Jacob. Forget the Pharisees from the previous verses squabbling about their bread with unwashed hands. Here is a true Israelite. He lifts her up to his table. 
Martin Luther says of this encounter, encounter, she took Christ at his own words. He then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. When others might deem her to be a dog, her faith shows that she's a child of Israel. Jesus' reply shows how well-placed her faith in him was. He says, verse 29, surely with a grin, a smile, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Done. Done like that. Verse 30, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Not surprised at all, I take it, that Jesus did as he said. Another remote healing when someone calls on it by faith. Jesus didn't even see her daughter, but he makes her well. Just the crumbs from your table, Lord Jesus. You are enough. Just a glance our way overwhelms our darkness. Now, it might be a way you can think of Jesus when you pray to him too. Lord Jesus, I know of your power. You are all I need. The smallest portion, even. Your infinite power and goodness. However you choose to apply it in my situation is enough for me. That's a prayer of faith. Your goodness and ultimate control of the world, that is enough for me. Whatever element of it comes my way before my eyes. Well, second, the second incident, the second encounter, God's salvation here looks like deaf ears, hearing and a tongue released. Verse 31, we read, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. It was still in Gentile land. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. They asked for a touch from Jesus. But Jesus gives them more than a touch, verse 33. He has the time and the interest to take what the Jews thought a pagan nobody from the crowd. He takes him aside as though he's a somebody. Then touches not only his shoulder or his head, but the very places that need healing. Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears, not seeing him as a dog, seeing him as a man who needs help. Puts his fingers into the man's ears, spits and then touches the man's tongue. Not always sure as to why Jesus does miracles in the way he does. But here there's an intimate connection with the problem and Jesus himself. He looked, verse 34, up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephathah, a Jewish prayer for a Gentile's tongue. Salvation is from the Jews after all. Ephathah, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened and the chains of the tongue were loosened and he began to speak plainly. The God who says, let there be light, draws near, takes a side, and he says here, be opened. Verse 36, we read, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were again overwhelmed with amazement. Psalm 107 was, after all, being played out before their eyes, even if they didn't understand or know yet about Psalm 107. 
You can see the inadequacy of language when they say, he's done everything well, beautifully. By faith, we too can say that, even if our circumstances would make it otherwise impossible. While the world gets bitter in its circumstances, uh, we can look at them with confidence in the God who allows us to be in them. These people are, after all, describing our Lord here, that he has done everything well. He has done everything well, beautifully. What does it look like for God to come to our rescue in our situation? What should we be expecting of him? Well, when God comes to the rescue in the Old Testament, it can look like Psalm 107. When God comes into the world in the Gospels, it can look like Mark chapter 7 an included woman, a restored girl, a hearing man. The God who saves there and then is the God we trust in here and now. Invisible, yes, but what's that to God? Invisible, yes, but what's that to the person who sees by faith? We may want the superhero fix. The superhero fix described in Psalm 107, described in Mark 7. An amazing 2021 victory lap appearance of Jesus that leaves us amazed. We love to hear of miracles in our time and place. But to walk with God by faith, more than not, more often than not, means we don't have everything fixed in this time and place. As we saw last week, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so often God's primary work within us the work of the holy spirit is to make us holy it's to do that heart work often that heart work the primary work the most important work that god does in our world and in us today is that internal work of the heart and in circumstances we wouldn't choose for ourselves about the mother who came to Jesus that day for her daughter. J.C. Ryle says this by way of conclusion. And so I, I finish with this. This mother, no doubt, had been sorely tried. She had seen her darling daughter vexed with a devil and been unable to relieve her. But yet that trouble brought her to Christ and taught her to pray. Without it, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely it was good for her that she was afflicted. Mark this well, says Ryle. There is nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. He continues, health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything Anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Better a thousand times to be afflicted like this woman and like her flee to Christ than live at ease like the rich fool 
and die at last without Christ and without hope. How do do you expect God to work in your world? We aren't to expect all of our problems to disappear and go away. We aren't to expect our future to miss out or, or to be without problems. But rather, the God of the Old Testament and the God who comes to us in the Lord Jesus would have us know that we can trust him. And through his death and through his resurrection and through his return to come and get us, we know that he's got us. Let's pray to him now. Our great God, we thank you for another disclosure of yourself to us today. The true and living God who made himself known throughout Israel's history. And then through the lens that Israel provided, made yourself known to us in the person of Jesus and accomplishing all that you said he would accomplish. Lord Jesus, we don't see you with our eyes, but we see you with the eyes of faith. And we pray that in our circumstances, whether things are going well for us or poorly, we would have eyes that treat you as you deserve, eyes that are ready to trust you, Father, help us to trust you in the worst of circumstances and help us to look outwardly to those around us who have otherwise no hope. Help us to bring those who are despairing to you. We pray, Father, for the churches in our area to grow, for you to bring people out of the woodwork, out of their lostness, into the flock of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.